And please open your Bibles to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. As I mentioned last week, my plan is to preach through the minor prophets, and so each Sunday we'll take up a new prophet. Last week was Hosea, this week Joel, and yes, goodbye kids, the kids are dismissed to Children's Church. Yes. I also, uh, by way of reminder, to save time so that I don't have to go into a lot of introductory stuff on the minor prophets, we did post a helpful article on our website under res uh, worship resources. It's an article by a good friend of mine, pastor in Omaha, his name is Bob Thune, wrote up a good introduction to the minor prophets. You can find more information on just the history of the minor prophets, the day in which they were speaking into, but I'll do a quick summary once again. Um, so let's think back in the Old Testament. Let's think back to when things were going really well. David is on the throne. He is king over Israel, and so the Israelites are made up of 12 tribes. But then after King David died, Solomon took the throne. After Solomon died, his son took the throne, and there was division. It was essentially a civil war that took place. And so the kingdom, the 12 tribes of Israel, split apart. Ten tribes in the north, in the city of Samaria, we would call them, they were referred to as Israel. And then two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were in the south, in Jerusalem, referred to as Judah. And what we find is that because of both Israel and Judah, their disobedience to the Lord, God allowed them to be punished by other nations, other kingdoms. Now, I refer to these like last week and this week, as the ABCs of exile. So if that helps you to remember. So first, with Israel in the north, God allows Assyria, A, Assyria, to conquer them, essentially to exile them, scatter them among people. And then B, Babylon. Years later, Babylon rises to power and conquers Judah in the south, exiles them. And so you can think of books like Daniel, written during that time period. But then also, what we find is, is the scripture is always full of hope, and so God did not leave his people in exile. What we have is see Cyrus of Persia, cheating a little bit, but Cyrus allows God's people, the Jews, to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city, to rebuild the temple. And so the 12 uh, minor prophets are ministering during this ABC of exile. Some of them to the northern kingdom, some of them to the southern kingdom, some during uh, or before exile, during exile, after exile. And each week as I lay out a prophet, I'll give a quick summary of that. But for now, keep in mind, if just uh, I'll summarize the minor prophets in a couple ways. One, the minor prophets were, you could think of them as mouthpieces of the Lord. They were speaking the truth of the Lord to God's people, reminding them of God's character, reminding them of God's goodness, reminding them of God's law. So they were mouthpieces of the Lord. We could also say the uh, minor prophets were pointers. They pointed back to the covenant that God established with his people. And last week I summarized it, this week I'll continue to summarize the covenant. When I say covenant, and the Bible says covenant all the time, but there's a shorthand for it, the covenant formula, where the scriptures say, I will be your God and you will be my people. So my plan is to continue to say that 
And after a little while, as we get really comfortable with each other, I will say covenant formula and point to you, and you all will say, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I know, we're not there yet. I know, it's all right, we're going to get there. I don't know when, but we will get there. So um, they pointed back to the covenant, calling people back to God's, or, or reminding people of God's faithfulness. Right? But also they pointed forward to the fulfillment, the future fulfillment of the covenant, that there would be a day where God establishes his covenant with his people perfectly. And we know that day through Jesus Christ. So minor prophets pointing back, pointing forward. Okay. Minor prophets ministered to God's people back then, but what we know of the scriptures, it is timeless. Timeless truths of God. Same struggles and issues, maybe a different context, but we face them, same God. So with that, the minor prophets always have a word for us. And so with that, um, we come to Joel. So a little bit background on Joel. We actually don't know much about the prophet Joel, except there's references in the book to, uh, to Judah and Jerusalem. So Joel uh, ministered in the south to Judah. We don't know exactly when, whether it was before the exile to Babylon, during or after, but actually it doesn't matter in the book of Joel because his message comes through crystal clear. And with that, let me pray for our time in the word and we will dive into the book of Joel. So my prayer, I'll take one of Paul's prayers and we'll make it our own. So this prayer based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Father, help us to increase and abound in love for you, for one another, and for a lost world around us. We pray that you would establish our hearts blameless in holiness before you, our God and Father, as we hope for the coming of the Lord Jesus with all of his saints. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The book of Joel, we are in chapter 2. And as I've mentioned before, my approach will be with each book of the Minor Prophet to plant us in a section of it, let's call it base camp, and we'll explore the rest of the book from there. But this morning we're in Joel chapter 2. You have it printed in your bulletins as well. And we'll read three different sections. Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. Through the years of all generations. And then to verse 10. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withhold their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments." Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. 
down to verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will, shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I'll show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. But among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And together the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So if you noticed in our passage in chapter 2, three different times we find the phrase in the beginning, the middle, and the end, the day of the Lord. And that is clearly the theme of the book of Joel, this day of the Lord that is near. If I could say it a different way, the end of the world as we know it. And I say that intentionally because I'm often interested of cultural references to the, de to the end of the of the world. And as I was thinking through various cultural references, how people think through the end of the world, um, the, like it or not, the REM song uh, kept popping in my head, it's the end of the world as we know it. So uh, I was actually driving home on Wednesday, I kid you not, the song then popped on the radio. So I'm listening on the radio and just intrigued again with cultural references. I, I Googled it um, later on, actually the next day, Googled it and a few things struck me. One, it starts off with, that's great. It starts with an earthquake, probably a biblical reference. But then in an interview, Michael Stipe, lead singer of REM, says this. When they played this in concert, he said, I quote, uh, or he quotes, uh, actually, how about this? I quote him. Uh, they thought the apocalyptic lyrics would, lyrics would create a more subdued response. Instead, audiences reacted with a party vibe, which is sad. Interest in this song skyrocketed again in March of 2020. Does that time ring a bell? Beginning of the coronavirus. People wondering if it was the end of the world or maybe just having fun with that song. And then this, the last one, over and over in that line, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. How do we feel about the end of the world? Right? Because how we feel about it will be governed by our beliefs. And for the Christian, how do we think and feel about the end of the world as we know it, or what Joel will refer to as the day of the Lord. And do we actually think about it? Like this morning, my guess is most of us probably did not wake up this morning and say, huh, I wonder if Jesus is going to return today. And that's not a guilt trip. That's just reality for most of our lives. And we can't really expect the culture to help us out with this. I mean, we're not going to be watching the news. The weather person comes on and says, man, a storm is brewing, but it's going to be nothing like the apocalypse, right? It's not going to happen. 
But to the extent that we do not think about the day of the Lord, we're in danger of not living in light of it. In other words, the day of the Lord should have implications in our lives now. And so if I could change the wording of this song a little bit, it would be this, the end of the world as we know it is near, and I feel fill in the blank. How do you think and feel about it? More importantly, how does Joel want us to think about the end of the world as we know it? And so what I want to do this morning is focus on the day of the Lord, what it means for us. And so with that, um, the day of the Lord in the book of Joel is mentioned five different times. We saw this three times in chapter two, but also once in chapter one and one fifteen, and the uh, fifth time would be in chapter three, verses 31. And of those times, three of them talks about how the day of the Lord is near. So what is this day of the Lord, and how do we understand the reality that it is near? Okay, so Joel was not the only prophet who spoke of the day of the Lord, right? Other prophets spoke of this day. And so just to summarize them, if, if we could boil it down, it would essentially be this. What's the day of the Lord? It's the day when the Lord intervenes in history in a significant way for his people. He intervenes in history in a significant way for his people, but it gets a little bit more complex than that. Because each one of the prophets has a bit of a nuance when they talk about the day of the Lord. So if we were to be able to interview them, what did you mean by the day of the Lord? We may get slightly different answers, but what I want to do is quickly just take all those answers. We're going to funnel them down to an overarching answer. So, again, but think of it this way. Day of the Lord, when God intervenes in history in a significant way for his people, but here are some of the ways the prophets would speak of that. Isaiah would talk about this day when God would bring judgment on Babylon. Jeremiah talks about judgment on Egypt. Ezekiel, a time of doom for all the nations. Amos, we'll get there next week. I'm not going to spoil it. Obadiah, judgment on Edom and the nations, but salvation for God's people. And then Malachi refers to the coming of the Lord himself to bring justice and claim his own people. So again, funneled down, the day of the Lord is God stepping in, intervening in history in a significant way for his people. And it is a day, if we boil it down, it is a day of judgment against sin, of people who set themselves up against God and oppress his people. But it's also a day of salvation for those who are faithful to the Lord. So it might be more accurate to think, for us to think in terms of days of the Lord, you know, lowercase d-a-y-s, multiple days of the Lord, judgments on a smaller scale that are leading up to the day, capital D-a-y, the capital day of the Lord, and that is the day when Jesus returns in all of his glory. So if a mental picture helps, Oftentimes, uh, I think of the Old Testament as, uh, as checkers, like a game of checkers. And here's what I mean. In checkers, you have the jump, right? But you also have the double jump. Like my kids never saw it coming when they were five, right? So 
the double jump, uh, as we think about the Old Testament, just let's use Isaiah as an example. Isaiah spoke about this day of the Lord as uh, the overthrow of Babylon. There's one jump. It happened. That happened in history. But Isaiah looked forward to another day, and he prophesied and spoke of another day where he said this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's the other jump. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So on one hand, yes, it was about Babylon and God overthrowing, but God overthrowing an even greater oppressor. So the scriptures constantly give us this reality in the Old Testament that comes into clear view in the New Testament through Jesus. And the writers of the New Testament, as they talked about the day of the Lord, they saw it all fulfilled in Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is reminding the church of the predictions of the prophet that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And he was referring to Jesus's return. And how are we to understand that this day is near? Again, Peter helps us in 2 Peter 3, where he says, with the Lord, the day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, for God, it's near. We're, he is not on our time frame. But here's the other way that it's near. We think about it. The scriptures talked about this day of the Lord in the future. And what we find is that when Jesus took on flesh, at that point, the clock really, in many ways, you could say, is ticking. That in his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. What's he doing? Preparing a place, interceding for us, and we're awaiting his return. No one knows the day or the hour, but the Bible says his return is near. So back to Joel. The day of the Lord is mentioned five times, and when it is, it is often described as a day of darkness and gloom. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Hear this, you elders, meaning leaders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the, hopper, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So what we have is Joel saying, listen to this, elders, you leaders, listen and tell everyone. And what are they to tell the future generations? The reality of God's judgment. And we see this throughout chapter one, that this is a day of judgment, so to speak, meaning um, this judgment is in the form of locusts. Like, what? 
Why locusts? We may not be able to really appreciate this reality because my guess is nobody has really in here been in a locust plague before. I mean, maybe like annoying cicadas and lots of them around, but that's actually not even close uh, to a comparison. So when we think of locusts, wouldn't that just be annoying to have a bunch of them and gross? No, locust plagues were absolutely devastating. And so we have to put ourselves in their shoes to understand and appreciate this locust plague that is spoken of as a judgment. And here's why. The locust devoured and destroyed everything. And specifically, three times in the book of Joel, grain, wine, uh, grain, wine, and oil are mentioned. And we might casually look at that and like, oh, that must have been some of their basics. Like, Think about in our shoes, if, if a locust plague came and somehow cheeseburgers, french fries, and Cokes uh, were demolished, like bummer, right? No, this is way beyond bummer. This is incredibly significant. Three different times in Joel, grain, wine, and oil are mentioned. And the reasons are, well, let's, before I go to the reasons, before that, let's go back to Hosea last week. Grain, wine, and oil were mentioned in Hosea because God withheld them from Gomer because Gomer did not attribute the good gifts in her life from the Lord. She broke covenant faithfulness, and God removed those from her in judgment. And then if we were to think about Psalm 104, speaks of wine to gladden the heart, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart, those three together again, and if we just keep walking back in the scriptures, we'd make it to Deuteronomy chapter 7 in Deuteronomy 28, where these three are spoken of again as not only good gifts of God, but they represent covenant blessing. So what we find in Joel, there's no specific sin mentioned, but as one of the minor prophets, we can just rightly assume that all the sins the other minor prophets talk about, Joel, uh, Joel was into as well, especially breaking covenant faithfulness. And what we find, interesting play on words in Joel, that the vine dries up, the wine dries up, verses 10 and 12, and gladness dries up. This is God's judgment for their lack of covenant faithfulness. Even more significant than that is the dev devastation of grain, wine, and oil, the way they were used in the temple as offerings to the Lord. Numbers 28 and 29 speaks of these daily offerings in the temple using grain, wine, and oil. And in fact, one commentator put it this way, this regular daily offering was regarded as the most important task of the priests on behalf of the community of Israel. It was the essential daily expression of the covenant between the Lord and his people. The Joel disaster meant the eradication of this daily assurance of the actual presence of God dwelling among the people as the Lord their God. The absence of grain, wine, and oil from the community and the absence of gladness, praise, and worship from the sanctuary together said one thing. The day of the Lord is at hand and it's going to get very dark indeed. We have not seen anything yet. That is accurate, and that actually takes us to chapter 2, 
where we find the locust invasion was just a foretaste of more to come. In chapter 2, verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion. Blow the trumpet. What, what, what's, what do we know about trumpets in, in the scriptures? Well, we know from Numbers chapter 10 that God instructed Moses with trumpets and his people. Trumpets were to be blown to either warn God's people of an invader or to assemble them together. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And this day of the Lord is coming with an army, and this is an army of devastation. And Joel gives us a picture of this demonstration, or this devastation in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, fire devours before them, and behind them left a flame that burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Get that picture. You get this picture of beautiful Garden of Eden in front of them, but by the time judgment comes through, everything is devastated, and nothing escapes. And this time in chapter 2, we're not talking about a locust plague. People have debated, debated this. Is this referring to locust? Is this referring to either Assyria or Babylon? And my take, many others' take, would be this. Um, this is the army of the one true king leading the host of heaven in the final judgment. Jesus spoke of this. Luke chapter 21, verse 25, was when he says, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then this day of judgment, chapter 3 in Joel, gives us more glimpse of this judgment. In verse 2, where the Lord says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That is the valley, that could be translated the valley of judgment. Valley of judgment. Verse 2, and I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. So who will be judged and condemned? It's the Lord on behalf of his people. It's those who have oppressed God's people. And then we see this more uh, laid out in 13 and 16, or 13 through 16. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. So with that, I want to ask a question. Back to the song. The end of the world as we know it is near, and I feel, how do you feel now? Right? This is uh, the words that come into my mind, um, warned, 
sobered. You just heard someone say terrified. But what about the people of God? What does Joel hold out for us? It's a day of mercy, of promise, and of hope. And this is what you have to love about the minor prophets. We see the, we see the hard truth of God of judgment, but we always see the glimpses of glorious grace and hope. Look in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. Ends with a question mark. Who knows? So, with this, the scriptures are clear. The heart is mentioned twice. Return to the Lord with all your heart. God is not empty, interested in empty ritual, empty religion. It is about the heart. It is about true repentance. That word repentance, it is turning away from our sin, and it is trusting in the Lord with all of our heart. That is what God is interested in. But oh, if only we had a gracious God that we could turn to when we have sinned. But then look at, look at what the verse says here. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. This is just an echo of Exodus 34, one of the most important verses in the Old Testament where God reveals himself to his people. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then verse 14, I love this. Who knows whether or not he will turn and relent and leave a blessing? Who knows? Joel understands that God will act according to his own sovereign purposes. Right? And Joel can't really foretell the future. And Joel's actually, actually, or essentially asking, who knows that God may be merciful to his people? But don't you love it when a question is asked and you know the answer? Oh, pick me, pick me. We know the answer. We know the answer because for Joel, it's in the future. But for us, it's in the past. What do we look back at? Will God be merciful? It's the cross. It's the cross. And I love this, uh, if I could just toy with this uh, wording a little bit, that maybe God will leave a blessing behind. Yeah, he did. It was a baby in swaddling clothes in a manger. And then Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days, in verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure 
For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Who knows if God will relent and have mercy. Thank you for Jesus. And then in chapter, or yeah, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, another trumpet appears. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chambers. Okay, so this is another trumpet, but this time the first one was more of an alarm for God's people. This one is in a, call, a call to assembly. And what are they to do? And by the way, everyone's called. Even it talks about uh, a new married couple. It's like, nope, um, great, you had your wedding day, but nope, assemble with us. This is more important. This involves the whole people of God, right? And this is what goes on. Then the priests are told to pray, and the prayer is, spare your people, O Lord. It's a prayer for mercy. And then we see this, this mercy in the rest of the chapter or the rest of the book of Joel, because from chapter 2, verse 18 and on, it's all about future. Verse 18, chapter 2. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. God has every right to be jealous over his people because they are his people that he has established his covenant with. I will be your God and you will be my people. In God's mercy, there is a promise here of restoration. Look at verses 20 through 24. And I will remove the northerner from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad, rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield." Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. In these verses here, we see this beautiful picture of restoration. And we can actually think, if we go back to our checkers illustration, of a triple jump, okay? First, it was this glorious garden of Eden, but Adam and Eve sinned and were exiled. But God did not give up. And then there was the promised land, that they made it into the promised land, the second jump, right? But again, unfaithful, they were exiled, but God did not give up. And then there's the third jump, this future promised land, greater than the garden of Eden, Scriptures refer to it as the new heavens and the new earth, place of perfect peace. This talks about this northerner that will be removed. It's like, wait, are we talking about people from like Nebraska or Minnesota? No, not our north. It's the context of Joel, right? And there's different different takes on this. Was he talking about locusts? Was he talking about Assyrian Babylon? What was he talking about? More, more than likely, 
That expression was any threat or any enemy. So we could understand that as the enemies of God on the final day of judgment. And then we see this beautiful promise of verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I will restore to you years that the swarming locust has eaten. eaten. Restore, to repay, to make up for. And I will tell you for me, this is one of the most meaningful verses in all of scripture as I've reflected on my own life and as I've had opportunity uh, to come alongside others and counsel them. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And where this has been meaningful are those who've experienced great brokenness. At times it's been people that they think about their past. It's their own sexual sin they're broken over, wondering about the future. It is trauma. It is abuse, wondering what the future will hold. It's people who are grieving deeply, at times over lost, lost loved ones. It is people with shattered hopes and shattered dreams. And what's the promise of the character of God? He is one who can and will restore the devastation of the past. He'll do it with this fallen world. He'll do it with our own lives. And we may or may not taste it on this particular earth. It may be that it's in the new heavens and new earth, but this is what's true. God has made his promises, and he does not take his promises lightly. He does not break his promises. Then we have these beautiful verses in 26 and 27. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, covenant language again, and there is none else, and my people shall never be put to shame. And then there's this glorious promise in verse 28 where God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is a significant phrase in the scriptures, and we find it in the New Testament. It's this. Well, let's think back first. God, in verse 23, talked about how he would pour out rain, and we can think of downpour, but we could think of that same term for the Spirit, a downpour of the Spirit. And here's the sense of it. In the Old Testament, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit was different. The Holy Spirit would come upon particular leaders in particular times for particular tasks. But this is referring to a day in the future when God's spirit will be, it will be a downpour. It will be poured out. And we see this coming to fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when it's Peter who recognizes when the Holy Spirit is poured out and he recognizes this is the prophecy of Joel that's coming true in that moment. And if you recall, Jesus had promised his disciples that when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he would no longer be with them in bodily form, but that he would send them the helper. 
to be with them till the end of the age, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we see this here. And for time's sake, I'm not going to elaborate on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, except to say it should dramatically impact the community of God's people to lead us into truth and for us to speak the truth, taking the word of God to a world that is on the brink of judgment. If I can quote Peter, who's fitting because he's the one who recognized in Acts chapter 2 this uh, fulfillment of the book of Joel taking, uh, taking the midst in their community, he says this later on. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of he who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And with that, this beautiful promise in 32 that Paul quotes in Romans 10. God's grace is this, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what's in store for God's people? There will be a trumpet, but there will follow that as a restoration. It's a new heavens and a new earth. No more sin, no more enemy, no more being put to shame. So back to the song. It's the end of the world, or the end of the world as we know it is near, and I feel grateful, secure. How about um, ready for the table? And if I could, just continue to read the very end of the book of Joel. Chapter 3, verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Again, covenant language. And dwell in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy. And strangers shall never again pass through it. Holiness. So as we come to the table, we should have gratitude because it is through the body and blood of Christ that we are made holy before God. And then the scriptures also tell us to continue to strive for holiness. Verse 18, and in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all of the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall go forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. So this is a picture of Eden, only better. A day of the Lord that brings total healing, no more curse. And there's this fountain that it mentions here. There's actually this fountain. There's this river that runs through the entire scriptures. Starts in the very beginning of Genesis and ends in Revelation. It is a fountain. It is a river of grace. And at the center of it is our Lord Jesus Christ, who said in John 4, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst again, speaking of eternal life. And then in verses 19 through 21, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I, I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. 
fairly sobering ending here, but look at the contrast between, between Egypt and Edom, but the people of God. God will fight for his people. This speaks of uh, innocent blood that was shed. Does it not bring us to the table? To our Lord Jesus who shed his blood, not because of his own sin, but for our sin. And what this does for me is this brings us back to Joel chapter one. Hear this, you leaders. Give ear, all inhabitants. Has such a thing happened in your days, in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What are we to hear and tell? It is the glory of the Lord. And we see it right in front of us at this table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle Paul adds, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And what are we declaring? I will be your God. You will be my people. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you meet us at this table in a way that strengthens us in our faith. Grow us in the knowledge of your glorious grace. And I do pray that you would give us a hope that sustains us, especially as we think of the glorious day of the Lord. So take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that we know that you are with us. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.